It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I wanna know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I wanna know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and I would be thrilled to receive a proficient service medallion for my podcasting efforts, but honestly, I'd settle for the remember-to-turn-the-recording-equipment-on ribbon. I'm joined on this episode once again by New York Times bestselling author David R. George III. David is the author of many Star Trek novels, including stories set in the original series era, Deep Space Nine, and the Lost Era Adventures of the Enterprise B under Captain John Harriman. His latest novel, Original Sin, is part of Pocket Books' DS9 relaunch and features Captain Sisko in command of the USS Robinson on a mission to explore the Gamma Quadrant. Dave, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you back on. Today we'll be talking about Duet, the 18th episode of the first season of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Human beings have been writing about war since the invention of writing, and with the tumult of the 20th century as a muse, the authors of the last 100 years have found an endless supply of stories to be found on the battlefield, from the sweeping romanticism of Gone with the Wind, to the cynical satire of Catch-22, to the bleak brutality of All Quiet on the Western Front. But the stories don't end when the guns fall silent. War kills not only soldiers, but also leaves communities, ideologies, and economies broken in its wake. Stories that show the aftermath of war, like The Third Man, or The Deer Hunter, or Johnny Got His Gun, remind us that the real victims of war are the ones that never fire a shot. And over the course of its seven seasons, Deep Space Nine would return again and again to tell us that war makes victims of the innocent and guilty alike. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Dave, I have an update for you on a question that vexed us when you were last on this program. Oh, I know where you're going. The question, of course, is, was Jonathan Goldsmith, a.k.a. the most interesting man in the world, on an episode of Star Trek, namely the episode The Corbomite Maneuver, the episode that we were discussing, and according to Star Trek Fact Check, which you can find at StarTrekFactCheck.blogspot.com, the answer is no. They addressed this Ah. urban legend in November of last year after William Shatner tweeted that Goldsmith had been on Star Trek. Uh, Shatner tweeted that in October, and our episode posted in August. So, hmm, if we're responsible for the recent interest in the subject, I will take that. Thank you for listening, Mr. Shatner. Uh, However, on two separate occasions in a Reddit AMA in 2012 and in a 2016 interview with the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, Goldsmith denied having appeared in the episode. Just one of those urban legends, huh? Right. And it seems like the confusion comes from the fact that in the Star Trek Concordance, B. Joe Trimble had listed Jonathan Lipp as being one of the crewmen in the episode. Jonathan Lipp was the stage name of Goldsmith uh, early in his career. And B. Joe seems to have gotten the Lipp name from a memo that she found in the UCLA Special Collections Library when she was researching for the Concordance. But that turned out to be the memo that she found was uh, a, not a cast list for the episode, but it was a list of the actors who auditioned for the role of Bailey, which was, of course, played by Anthony Call in the episode. 
So someone on the internet read that in the concordance. Uh, Early in this decade, they picked up uh, on that name, they made a meme, and it just took off from there. That's some impressive research, I have to say. I actually tried to look into it after we did the podcast on the Corbomite Maneuver, and I certainly didn't didn't know about Star Trek FactCheck.com. I don't know uh, why that didn't show up, but I, I couldn't find anything that corroborated him being on the show. And obviously we know why, because there is no corroborating right. evidence because he wasn't actually on it. Right. But uh, I'm, I'm delighted to hear that you cleared that up. I would have been surprised if the answer had been yes, because, you know, you and I talked about who he could have been, and obviously some supernumerary somewhere, some some extra in the background. Right. But there are only a couple of scenes where there are actually extras visible, and I looked at those, and none of them even remotely resembled either him as he is now or what you could even have surmised he might have looked like when he was much younger. So I'm not surprised to find out he wasn't on it. It's interesting how these things develop, though. Yeah, it's really how they propagate it. It is interesting. Um, And I think it shows that uh, the career of Star Trek history minor uh, or investigator is uh, something that I think would be a viable job, especially uh, as we get farther and farther away from the original series. Something that never really passed the smell test for me um, as a former actor, is that Goldsmith, or Lip in this case, you know, he already had his SAG card by 66. He had had speaking guest roles in other shows of the time, like 12 O'Clock High and such, um, which would explain him auditioning for the role of Bailey, but there'd be no reason that he would take a non-speaking extra role in a 10-second crowd scene. You know, if he didn't book Bailey, then he'd be off to look for some other guest role uh, for that week. Well, how, how many credits that he had before that? I mean, sometimes people just took work just to get a paycheck, even if it's just being background, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, had he had a lot of credits to that point? or uh, I think he'd had uh, probably half a dozen. It's hard to tell, because I, I, I do know of actors who, um, who have had speaking lines but have gone back and just done background work from time to time mm-hmm. um, when they couldn't get anything else. But... Yeah, I mean, it it all seemed fishy. <laughs> but if it's on the internet, I know that people think if it's on the internet, it must be true. Yeah. Or on a podcast. <laughs> right, yes. Well, uh, all credit goes to Star Trek Fact Check uh, for that, which I... Uh, discovered doing research for this because I wanted to have a definitive answer. Uh, And it's good to have that put to bed. Now I have to find out whether or not Victoria Vetri was in Assignment Earth uh, to make Greg Cox happy. Okay. Who's Victoria Vetri? So when uh, Isis, the uh, cat feline companion of Gary Seven, um, at the end of the episode, uh, Assignment Earth transforms into human form. She becomes a uh, very comely uh, sort of dark-haired female. And it's always been, it's even on Memory Alpha, it's always been assumed that that was Victoria Vetri, who was an um, actress uh, and got her start as a playbo- uh, Playboy model in the uh, 60s. And I said that to Greg Cox when he was on the show, and he was immediately like, that is not Victoria Vectri. like, whoa, whoa, okay. And he told me this whole story about how, just like the Jonathan Lip thing, this misinformation gets put somewhere on the internet, like Memory Alpha, or in a quote-unquote trusted source, and then gets propagated. But he knows for a fact, and I trust him, being like the expert on all things Gary Seven, that that is not Victoria Vectri. It is some unknown actress. Well, that's the problem, too, is unknown i mean yeah. it's not like you can just i mean she she had no lines she was essentially background featured background i guess because uh, the way it played out but still oftentimes and even more today 
those actors don't get credit. Yeah. So, yeah, there's nothing to check it against. I mean, it makes it difficult to um, to track down. How long has Star Trek Fact Check been around? So I, I, I didn't know about that site. I, I didn't either until I just found it now. Um, and I'm actually going to send him a tweet about the um, Vetri thing and see if he can track that down. Uh, I think it's been oh, around yeah. since uh, 2015 and 2016. To check that out because there's so much misinformation out there or yeah. speculation or what have you. And you know, the thing about propagating rumors uh, or, or even truths on the internet that I've noticed in trying to do research, the internet is a decent place to start, but it's difficult to really trust it because when something gets out there, if I'm looking, I'm, I'm trying to find something in particular, I'll find what seems to be a fact about something, and then I'll try and, if you try and to authenticate it in other sources on the internet, you'll find that not only is the fact copied elsewhere, but the exact verbiage is copied elsewhere. So oh, yeah. you know that this stuff just propagates by cutting and pasting. Yeah. So if it's wrong once, it can easily be wrong a hundred times. Yeah. And Google does not cater to uh, academic search results. You know, you're going to see something. No. Somebody posted something on um, social media or Facebook. Uh, and you're, you know, the first 200 results are going to be that before you even get into something uh, that might be considered a reliable source. Right, right. I have to say, in your introduction, I was impressed by the mention of All Quiet on the Western Front, Johnny Got His Gun. These are not contemporary references. <laughs> Well, uh, they're excellent references, but that—that—that's. I mean, I'm, I'm delighted to hear somebody mention uh, pieces like those that that warrant, you know, keeping in the zeitgeist because they're just, you know, fantastic. Yeah. Well, the 20th century um, was um, it was a it was a growth market for war, you know, and there was a lot of fiction uh, that came out of that unfortunate fact. Uh, something that we will definitely be talking about. And also, I like the fact that you brought up the idea of misinformation and getting to what the truth is, because that uh, certainly uh, is reflected in this episode that we're going to talk about today. But before we get to that, um, you're something of a film aficionado. You're often posting reviews of films uh, that you've seen on social media. Uh, is this just a hobby for you, or would you ever consider like doing a movie book? You know, I, I think I would consider certainly doing a movie book, Um yeah, I am a film a film buff. Uh, I mean, I just I love movies, um, and uh, you know, from from the beginning of the medium to now, I mean, there's you know, there there are terrible old movies, but there are great old movies. Just as there are terrible new movies and great new movies. So, right. um, you know, I, I have a passion for writing. I have a passion for film. So it just made sense to uh, to me. I just started uh, doing film reviews sort of for no reason other than to, you know, sort of amuse myself. I actually used to do it on Facebook for, just for my friend. I didn't know what to post on Facebook. I, I, I didn't, you know, I wanted to stay in touch with people that were not in my life every single day. Right. And just keep up with what they were doing. But I didn't know what I, what I wanted to post about myself. It's like, you know... I don't, I don't, nobody cares what I'm having for breakfast or, or, you know, what, what, I, what I'm doing this evening. But so I just started posting what I, I used to call capsule film reviews because at some point Facebook limited posts to like 600 characters or something. So I just used to, when I would see a movie, I would just post a little capsule review of it. And to my astonishment, my friends just loved it. So, you know, I, I created my own website last year and, and so I've just started taking to, 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 creating 
full-blown reviews, which are far more than 600 characters. And <laughs> right. just, uh, I just enjoy doing that. So I actually have thought about um, sort of seeking out uh, actually a movie reviewer position for a paper or a website oh, or something like that. I'm not entirely sure how to go about doing that. So if there anybody, uh, there's anybody out there for uh, a magazine or a newspaper or a website who, who's looking for a movie reviewer, go to drgiii.com and contact me. Sure. If anybody wants a New York Times bestselling author to review movies, uh, this is the guy for you. There you go. Uh, I won't ask yeah. you what your favorite film is because I know I can't answer that question, but do you have a favorite genre of film? You know, I, I'm sort of just a kind of a mainstream drama kind of guy. Oh, okay. um, yeah. I, I do have, uh, I mean, my two favorite films, uh, and they sort of alternate about which is my favorite, um, I think are, to me, the same film, just with different takes on them. Um, one is Citizen Kane. Okay. Pretty easy to run that one up the flagpole and get it saluted. Right. Um, but it's a great film, uh, not just because of the content, not just because of the acting and the directing and all of that, but also because it was groundbreaking movie making. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's difficult sometimes to go back and look at the film and realize that a lot of the kinds of shots that Orson Welles was doing had never been done before. Right. Uh, movies were right. to that point shot in a certain way, and he just revolutionized it. But it's also a great story. It's a tragic story of a man. My other favorite film uh, is It's a Wonderful Life, which okay. is the story of a man, but the exact opposite of, of Citizen Kane. You know, um, uh, and I had actually never seen It's a Wonderful Life until I was an adult, well into my adulthood. I just I had this sort of pop culture notion about what the film was because it was all over the place. At some point, it had fallen out of copyright, and so everybody was broadcasting it, and they were, of course, they were stripping it for so they could fit in more commercials and things right. like that. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I saw it all the time. I saw you know snippets here and there, but I never. I, I don't know. It just it was nothing. So, nothing that ever appealed to me. I, I thought of it as schmaltz. Yeah. It, this was just my notion of it without even having watched it. But when I watched it, I realized that it was an astonishingly good film. And Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed are amazing in it. And really, it's sort of, you could argue that it's science fiction. Maybe <laughs> yeah, more sure. fantasy. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but, I mean, there is essentially some, there's a, there's a sideways sort of time travel in it. And it's, um, I mean, it's sort of a take on A Christmas Carol, too, in a way. But um, it's, just, it's just a fantastic movie. But I, I've got... I've got a lot of films that are that I just love, um, but those I, I think those two are at the top of the list. Actually, this past weekend, I just went and saw Casablanca oh, on the big screen. Sure. There was a revival house here that shows occasionally shows uh, old movies. Last week I saw To Kill a Mockingbird. This week I saw Casablanca, and you know Casablanca also both and To Kill a Mockingbird, both fantastic films. Well, um, let's move on and keep talking about Star Trek, I guess. Uh, have you been watching Star Trek Discovery? You know, I've been traveling a lot. I saw the first episode, but I have not watched beyond that. I, I, I just have not been in town to be able to do that. So that's something on my list. Sure. I would say definitely catch up on it if you can. And I'll give you a um, slight spoiler for the last episode. But Clint Howard does appear in the finale of the first season. Which is fantastic. But, and yes. Um, one of my... <laughs> One of my closest friends is um, is Kirsten Beyer. Sure. Who is 
on the show. She's a staff writer on the show, actually story editor now. Yeah. So um, I, I have a great familiarity with what's going on on the show. He's actually uh, in the episode. He plays um, sort of a scummy Orion guy. And I'm sad to see that he's moved on from Tranya to Inhalants. He's uh, doing <laughs> volcano vapors. So bad news. Gateway. Gateway well, you gateway. know, in Discovery Anti-Date, the original series, so yeah, I guess <laughs> yeah. the vapors are... Vapors are the gateway to Tranya. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> uh, they also de-age you to a, to a baby, I guess, or a very small child. <laughs> yeah, right, right. They give the, the Benjamin Button effect. <laughs> uh, can you tell me why you chose this specific episode duet to discuss today? Well, I, I thought about, obviously, what my favorite Star Trek episodes were across all of the series. And my favorite episode, which you've already discussed on the show, is The City on the Edge Forever. Yes. Which I, again, another one that's that's uh, e- easy to get everybody on board with. Um, a love story, a morality story, and, you know, the very favorite time travel story. But Duet, um, you know, I liked Deep Space Nine when it first came on. Um, I, I, didn't, I didn't necessarily think, I'm trying to remember my, my attitude about Deep Space Nine when it first hit the air. First of all, hearing the name Deep Space Nine didn't actually give me a great deal of confidence, which is ridiculous, of course. Don't judge a book or a television series by its cover or title. Sure. But Deep Space Nine, I think there was a really, like, a, a, a B science fiction movie called Deep Star Six or something like that. Okay. Um, and hearing Deep Space Nine just gave me those, that it just, it's like, man, that's a terrible title. But when the show came on, I liked it. Um, and then later when I was writing Deep Space Nine, and I, I, I actually would watch the series again on DVD from beginning to end. Um, and at that point, sort of, when I rewatched it, I, I actually fell in love with the show and realized how amazing the show is. But in my initial run, I liked it. And, and I remember getting to duet, and the episode just blew me away. And it remains one of my favorite hours, not just of Deep Space Nine, but of all the Star Trek series. So I thought, hey, nobody's picked this episode. Let's pick this one. Yeah. And you used uh, similar themes and even the setting of uh, the Galatep camp in your novel, The 34th Rule. Yeah. And, you know, actually, I didn't even think about that until I was watching the episode and they mentioned Galatep. I'm like, oh, right, I, I was there. <laughs> I did that. <laughs> yeah. I did that. And in fact, obviously this is where I got it from, but it's funny that you mentioned the 34th rule because um, I was just recently uh, a guest on the Literary Treks podcast. Oh, sure. Um, and they asked me to discuss the 34th rule. Okay. <laughs> so, which I was reluctant to do because I wrote it so long ago that yeah. I was like, am I going to even remember but it turned out once we got talking about it, I did. So we were talking about Galatap. So when it showed up in duet, I was like, oh, right, yeah. Oh, that, yeah. That, that, that's here. <laughs> I did that. Well, let's get into talking about this episode, uh, Duet, the 18th episode of the first season of DS9. It first aired on June 13th of 1993. The teleplay for the episode is by Peter Allen Fields, who is an ex- executive script consultant for the fifth and sixth seasons of The Next Generation and a producer for the first two seasons of DS9. He wrote many episodes of TNG and DS9, including the teleplay for The Inner Light. And the story for the episode is by the writing team of Lisa Rich and Gene Kerrigan Fauci. They wrote the teleplay for the TNG episode Liaisons and the DS9 episode Move Along Home. Two episodes I'm 
not particularly fond of, uh, but this one turned out all right. It was directed by James L. Conway, who directed 18 total episodes of the four post-TOS pre-Discovery series, including Broken Bow, the two-hour pilot of Enterprise. No star date is given for this episode, so we don't know it. And your assignment, Dave, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of Duet. I'm a novelist. 25 words is, you know, that's barely an opening sentence. Uh, A Cardassian shows up on Deep Space Nine who Kira believes to be uh, the commandant of a notorious work uh, camp on Bajor during the occupation. And she wants to make sure that he pays for his crimes. I think that's perfect. That's very succinct and descriptive. Here are some interesting facts from the memory banks about this episode. The working title for the episode was The Higher Law, and it was conceptualized by Rich and Kerrigan Fauci on the idea of a character having to defend their worst enemy. It was also conceived as a bottle show to offset the expense of DS9's pilot emissary. The plot of the episode was based on a novel and play by Robert Shaw, yes, that Robert Shaw, called The Man in the Glass Booth, where a... Man is put on trial for Nazi war crimes, but it's later revealed that he isn't who he says he is. Leonard Nimoy, interestingly, played the lead role in a production of the play in 1971, and the play and the novel themselves are based in part on the actual Nuremberg trials and the capture, trial, and execution of Adolf Eichmann in the early 1960s. And this episode marks the first mention of the Shakar resistance cell that Kira was a member of. That will return over the course of the series of DS9. It's one of the few DS9 episodes to have no B or subplot. It's focused entirely on the main story. This episode finds itself in many lists of the top 10 episodes of Deep Space Nine. It was ranked by Cinefantastique as the best episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. It's also a favorite of actors Nana Visitor and Armin Shimmerman, and also Trek author Terry Erdman and Trek producer Dave Rossi, both former guests on this show, cite it as one of their favorite episodes. The guest stars in this episode, of course, the premier guest in this episode is Harris Yulin as Maritza. Yulin has appeared in well over 100 TV and film projects and is a stage director himself. And I'm sure you've experienced this. He's definitely a, a that guy, as in you're watching a show and you go, hey, it's that guy. Um, he's appeared in films like Scarface, uh, Ghostbusters 2, uh, Training Day, Looking for Richard. And he was also in Cutthroat Island, although I can barely remember anything from Cutthroat Island. And I think that's a mercy. Can't tell you because I never saw it. <laughs> but uh, Harris, as I, I don't, I'm trying to remember where I picked up this piece of information. So, and if it was on the internet, perhaps uh, it's not a true piece of information. Oh, okay. But it might have been in this, so, uh, this one of the Star Trek Deep Space Nine resources. Um, there's a Deep, Deep, Deep Space Nine book, uh, a trade paperback that's fairly thick that actually discusses the making of every episode. So there's some behind the scenes stuff. Okay. So it might be from there that I picked it up that, that watching the dailies, um, people weren't particularly enamored of Harris Hewlin's performance. Um, <laughs> okay. seeing every, seeing him on screen, they didn't, it didn't seem to them, um, that it cohered, that, that actually there was a, th- that he was following the through line there, but watching the episode, uh, you just can't, I couldn't help but be impressed by everything that he did. Because here's a man who wants, I mean, he's a, he's a patriot in the sense that he wants his people to be their best selves. Right. And yet he knows that they haven't been because he 
witnessed and appreciates the immorality of what they did on Bajor, of not only occupying Bajor, but of brutalizing its citizenry. So he wants to pull his people up out of that, uh, and, and so essentially wants to put uh, the man he's pretending to be, this, this brutal commandant of Galatep, on trial, to put his, to put his people on trial, not to, not to hurt them, but to help them get past it and elevate themselves. Right. And also, on top of that, he's dealing with this tremendous guilt he has for essentially doing nothing to prevent this brutality of of the Bajorans. Um, Even though he was in no position to stop it, he feels culpable because he could do nothing but but cower when he heard their screams. Uh, It's a very poetic episode, I think, and the the levels that Harris Hewlin played, because now he's playing... First, he's, he's portraying somebody who's pretending to be, it's, 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 it's like, it's a, uh, you know, double secret, you know, reverse. It's right. unbelievable. I mean, this, this, this file clerk goes to Deep Space Nine intentionally, uh, and so, so that they will think that he was at Galatep uh, and, and imprison him, but he claims to be this file clerk. But, in the, but five years earlier, he had actually had reconstructive surgery on his face to make himself look like the commandant of Galatep. Right. And so he pretends to be this file clerk that he actually is until they discover that, oh, by his looks, they can determine, oh, no, no, he's actually the commandant of Galatep, the right. butcher of Galatep, they call him, um, Goldar Heel. And, um, and, but then it, but actually, he, he's Maritza, the, the, the file clerk, pretending to be Darheel, um, but he doesn't want to be found out, but then he is found out, and he, he reverts to, to being who he is in reality. So he's playing multiple levels of this character, uh, yeah. and, and to my appreciation, very, very well. Yeah, it's, he relies on, um, you know, he knows Kira, I suppose, by reputation, so he relies on our hero in this instance to, you know, ferret out the truth, but he doesn't he doesn't count on the fact that she is our hero and she's going to ferret out the entire truth, you know, so his sort of switchback deception uh, kind of turns on him. And I'd agree with you, or at least I'd, I'd also be confused with you <laughs> at whoever was complaining about his performance like i understand that they shoot things out of sequence and so but the fact it just shows how skilled he is and probably um how well he worked with the director and the director's skill in that they kept that line going which can be very difficult as an actor to do when you are shooting something out of sequence and having to know exactly where you are especially with a character who goes through all these stages and yeah, <laughs> I'll have to ask Star Trek fact check about that one too because I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> it's it's excellent. He's very different in all those stages too, yes. and you know because it's a bottle show because so many scenes were shot on the same set, the uh, Odo's uh, um, jail or brig. Um, I, I I don't know that they would have shot out of sequence, but they certainly could have, and that might have. That, maybe that that was the the source of that, or maybe I'm just imagining that, and I'm not right about it. But you know, the thing of it is, I, well, he didn't. Uh, also, want to point out this this man did not um, k- no k- 
cure by reputation. He actually sought out, and you find this in the episode, he sought out information on Kira months earlier. Um, he put an information request from where he was residing on Kira 2 to find out about Kira. Right. Um, you know, he, so he did his research to know, all right, this is somebody who's, who fought in a resistance cell. And, and although the episode doesn't make this uh, doesn't say this explicitly. It, it, it's certainly plain from the facts of it. Kira was a, ch- a teenager when she was doing this. Sure. Yeah. Or possibly even even young. She says she joined when she was 12. You know, in the first season of Deep Space Nine, she's 25, 26, something like that. And they were make, referring to um, events 12 years earlier, which makes her 13 or 14. Right. Um, so not only was this, even for an adult, I'm sure that liberating... Uh, a brutal forced labor camp. Um, I mean, I, I think of the soldiers, the American soldiers liberating Auschwitz or Birkenau or, and how how they were impacted by it. Now to think of somebody, imagine if one of those American soldiers had been 13 doing that. So right. you're not only just have the human uh, reaction to, to this absolute horror, but at 13 or 14, I don't. I don't know. At twenty six or thirty, at forty, you would have the, the the experience enough to deal with that. But certainly, you don't have it at thirteen or fourteen. Oh, certainly not. Yeah. So Kira was clearly deeply affected by that, and and you can see where her emotions come from easily in the episode. Yeah. Uh, Mark Alimo makes his first reappearance as Gal Dukat since his first appearance in the pilot emissary in this episode. Also, Robin Christopher has a small part in the episode as Neela, O'Brien's assistant. She's important because she would go on to play a larger role in the next episode and season finale in the hands of the prophets. Uh, the character of Anara, which was played by actress Benita Andre, was introduced in the episode before this, uh, The Forsaken, and she was originally intended to fill the role of Neela in these three episodes at the last, uh, at the end of this season. But the producers decided that Andre wasn't quite right for the role, and so they recast her and renamed the part. Yeah, it's very clear when you see Neela, uh, although is she given a name in the episode? I don't, I don't believe Brian in this episode. No. Yeah, I don't think so. But you you see them working together, and then she, they're both squatting b- before a, a panel, and, and she's making adjustments under his direction. Right. And then she stands up, and they, they stand up. Well, she stands up. I don't know if he stood up, because the camera then follows her and focuses on her. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of an odd moment if you don't know what's coming in the next episode. <laughs> right. why, are they, why are they keeping the camera on this character I, who doesn't have a name and I don't even know? Yeah. Right, but I guess obviously they wanted to establish her, right? So that, you know, just pulling somebody for the, you know, inventing a new character for the finale of the first season. Yeah, you always have to watch out when uh, suddenly there's somebody who's hanging around uh, very prominently in the background in a Starfleet uniform, or in this case, a Bajoran uniform. Right. And they tried that a couple times um, in Deep Space Nine, or excuse me, in the Next Generation. Early on, they would have like, "Oh, this is the kind of silly character who's going to be an aide to Geordi," and "Oops, she spills coffee on the captain." And uh, I think right. they decided, "Okay, no, let's just not do that. <laughs> let's not even bother with yeah. that." Um, yeah, although. I know that they did that in Voyager. It was my wife saw a play this past weekend that starred Martha Hackett. Oh, and um, 
like Martha Hackett. I know that name. She was in my episode of Voyager. Right, yeah. <laughs> and in fact, I think she played Seska, and Seska is sort of one of those characters, but she be- she had a greater role than just one or two, three episodes. I mean, she, she had an arc, uh, ultimately. Yeah. But she was introduced in Prime Factors. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I like... I get that when you want somebody to play a role in a show, you, it's better. It feels more natural if, if they're already there, especially um, if you know it's something dramatic. Otherwise, it just feels sort of convenient, you know. While yeah. We're just creating this character that we've never seen before. I mean, somebody that like is part of the crew or whatever. Yeah, um, it is difficult. And also you have to service, of course, um, your ever-increasing cast. Like by the time we get to Voyager, you've got essentially nine principles that you have to service. So I think it's it's tough to to do that, to service all those uh, characters. Let's just... Well, it absolutely, yeah, it absolutely is. And you see that in this episode in Duet as well, because that scene with O'Brien... I mean, he's there, and then he has a, a, a another line in, or two lines later in the scene, and that's it for O'Brien in the episode. Yeah. And then there is really just a, a quick scene of some Galatep survivors outside Odo's office. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, waiting to find, and then you see Quark, and Quark, you know, makes a, an observation to uh, to Odo, and that's it for Quark. So, yeah, I mean, obviously. It's difficult as a writer to service all of your characters. All of really, you're serving servicing all of your actors. Yeah, right. When you've got a large cast, and you know the Star Trek, the original Star Trek didn't really have that problem because Star Trek was not an ensemble show. No, there, there really wasn't such a thing as an ensemble show. Really, back in the '60s, I mean that show starred William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy and DeForest Kelly, and everybody else. They were. You know, they're not not extra more than extras, obviously, but but they didn't have a lot of roles to play in in most of the stories, right. and that's wholly different with Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and Voyager, where you've got these enormous casts, um, and you want to you want everybody to show up. You want you want your actors to get paid and get residuals, right. and, yeah. you know, maybe be able to, to make a living. So they need to appear. But then you've got shows like this, which are very clearly. Akira episode, and, and in fact, Cisco is not in the episode all that much either. That's I mean, true. it really is Kira forward, yeah. and it should be because, I mean, to me, this is Star Trek. This is quintessential Star Trek. This is what Star Trek's about uh, for me, um, and it's always been that way. Even even when I watched the show as a kid, I really gravitated to its themes of of inclusion. Right, everybody deserves a seat at the table, and uh, and in a lot of ways, this episode is not just about the traumas of war and the post traumas of war, but it's also about racism yeah. because everything that Kira went through has made her predisposed to hate Cardassians. Yes, and that's one of the beautiful things about this episode is that Kira, in a very organic way, comes to understand that that's the wrong attitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to me, that's, I mean, it's a very impressive piece of growth for the character. Yeah, absolutely. There's also a theme, I mean, social allegory has always been the bread and butter of Star Trek storytelling. And there's also a, a theme in this episode, uh, that history is not only written by the victors, but it's erased and edited by them as well. Um, and the Cardassians Mm -hmm. have so much pride as a people, 
uh, that they can't seem to really countenance what they did during the occupation so that you know death camps become work camps and, and freedom fighters are terrorists and there's a real mistakes were made on both sides vibe which is sadly all right. too real in our world yeah you know it's interesting because when in his when Maritza is playing Gul Darheel and he's trying to antagonize Kira, he wants Kira to hate him because he wants her to bring that that well Darheel, but also all of Cardassia to account for what they did, and he wants her to make and all of Bajor to make Cardassia account for itself. Um, but when he's talking to her and baiting her, he actually does sell, tell some truths, really which is really interesting. And some of these are shaded, like you say, I mean, he calls the, you know, for Kira, she's a freedom fighter. To her, to, to Darheel, he's a terrorist. Right. She's a terrorist. And, um, I mean, Kira essentially admits to having killed civilian Cardassians. Yeah. She says a lot of things I regret doing after he says you killed civilians. Uh, but he also says, when she says, you're a war criminal, she, he says, you'd like that to be true, but we know there was no war. She sure surrendered, <laughs> right. which also, there's truth to that, too, and it's a truth that hurts. So Kira's not, uh, on top of everything else, he's not just remembering the horrors she witnessed at Galatep. She's not just remembering, uh, you know, to this point, most of her life, has been lived under the occupation, under the the, the brutal yoke of Cardassian oppression. Yeah. She's not just remembering all of that. She's also dealing with the fact that her people didn't stand up and th- and throw off that yoke of oppression. They they did capitulate, and so she's. I mean, it's it's many layers uh, that. Um, are involved in this episode that just make it, I think, well worth watching. You know, and it's a theme that I, I've touched on this in uh, in some of my books, because some of my Deep Space Nine books, because I find it so fascinating. Because what he, what Darheel or Maritza, as Darheel says in this episode, here says, "Well, we did, you know, we did stand up and we 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 got you off of Bajor. and he says, "Leaving was a political decision." Right. Yeah. And. Really, that's borne out by Emissary, by the first episode. Um, it really, I mean, Cardassians ultimately chose to leave, um, and they didn't They didn't really have to. I mean, yeah, I mean, the Bajorans were fighting, but they they weren't going to win, you know? Uh, I mean, they weren't winning. So, I, I don't know, it's, to me, it's all fascinating. It's, it's And, of course, the obviously, Obvious parallels to the Nazis yeah. and World War II yeah. and Germany and 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 the concentration camps are are obvious. Just because they're obvious doesn't mean it, they're not worth exploring. Oh, certainly. I was reminded of um, real life situations where war, war criminals or atrocities are being brought to light. Whether it's the capture and trial of Eichmann, like I mentioned, or the work of. Um, truth and reconciliation commissions in places like um, Argentina or South Africa or Chile. Um, just the uh-huh. idea of letting the the stories be told. It isn't necessarily that somebody is going to be punished or we're going to, you know, go hunt somebody down after this, but just the idea that these stories don't get told. You know, these people, there's nobody left to tell the story. And so the people right. who are left can say whatever they want. And part of the restorative process is just setting you know setting the story straight you know getting the truth out you know a couple of years ago uh i went to for the first time i went to auschwitz 
and I went to Birkenau. And um, it was a, an amazing experience. Um, I don't have a family history. Uh, I, I don't happen to be Jewish uh, or, or, you know, Romanian or, you know, any of the groups that were oppressed by the Nazis. Um, and that was completely immaterial because this is a human loss. This is... I, I, uh, it was it was astonishing to be there and experience it. I actually think everybody should go and experience what it was like. But one of the things that was most fascinating to me was the amount of physical evidence that has been preserved specifically to avoid Holocaust denial. Sure. Um, and and they it's amazing to me that they anticipated that that they would need this proof. <laughs> Right, that that just the collective memories of everybody wasn't going to be enough. Right. So there's actually a dramatic amount of physical proof at Auschwitz of what happened. Yeah. And of course, the Nazis, when it was apparent they were going to lose the war and they started to withdraw, they tr- like the Cardassians in in Deep Space Nine, they tried to destroy evidence of everything. Yeah. Now it always struck me as a virtual admission of guilt, because if you haven't done anything wrong, if, if you can justify why you're running these camps and in the way that you're running them, why destroy all of the evidence of the camps and how you ran them? Right. Right. I mean, you don't need to destroy evidence of your good works. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> I think it's telling. Uh, f- I think it's telling that Maritza's role in the camp was that of a record keeper, of a file clerk, and it is ultimately um, the Cardassians' um, desire for order and keeping records. You know that basically, you know, it causes him to want to bring this to light. Like that's he's not going to let this just go away. Um, I'm reminded a lot uh, in this episode. I, I think the parallels from uh, Goldar Darheel to Eichmann are, are clear. Um, Eichmann, of course, mm-hmm. oversaw the deportation of much of the Jewish population. And even there's, I was looking through, there's even some quotes by him specifically that seem that you could just stick them right into uh, Darheel's dialogue. Um, him talking about, you know, leaping, laughing into the grave, you know, because of, you know, what he's done, you know, his work giving him mm-hmm. a sense of extraordinary satisfaction. Uh, it's chilling, and uh, the dialogue from uh, Darheel as Mar- or Maritza as Darheel in the episode is chilling as well. It, you know, one of the things to me that's chilling about it is that you know, you know, somebody can die in a car accident. Somebody will die in a car accident today. Many people will die in car accidents today, and that's terrible. It's terrible for them. It's terrible for their families, for their loved ones. But it's something that was an accident. I mean, that which doesn't mitigate it at all. But what happened during World War II in the camps, for example, and in all of Nazi Germany, is completely avoidable, right? Yeah. This wasn't an accident. This was intentional. And and again, when I was at the camps, it was the sense of you know outrage isn't even the right way. It's just such such sorrow that human beings could actually intentionally do this. Right. And it, 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 it feels like an aberrant human being could do this, but this was more than one aberrant human being. And I wonder how much of, of a, a peer pressure or mob mentality contributed to all of this. Um, it, it's just, I, I don't know, it's, 
it's just that the sort of that aspect of it that this was completely unnecessary. Even even with respect to the Nazi war effort, it was unnecessary. Right. I mean, this, this you know, uh, I, I just not not that they were justified in wanting to uh, war other other than the Holocaust. You know, the, you know, they, that was terrible too. But it's like you, you didn't have to do this, and yet you did, and that I, I, it's really tough to wrap your brain around. Yeah, just the banality of evil. Yeah, oh, right, yeah. yeah. I've heard before that the Cardassians aren't supposed to stand in for anyone in particular, or you know, even that in many ways they represent um, like the Soviets you know, during the Cold War. But I've always thought that they had stereotypically Germanic traits. Um, they don't seem to have much of a sense of humor. Uh, they're preoccupied right. with order over equality. Uh, they value you know, loyalty, family, the fatherland. Um, they like Symmetry and Gothic architecture as well, and meticulous record keepers. That's right, uh, and love the sound of their own voices. Oh yes, the Cardassian monologue uh, I think gets its debut really in this episode, <laughs> which would go on mm-hmm. to uh, appear in many many uh, other episodes of the show. Uh, and of course, the gray uniformity of their costumes must be trying to invoke uh, Nazi Germany. Maybe like Prussian virtues would be more accurate. Um, Mm-hmm. If, we, if we don't yeah. want to indicate anybody who's uh, still around today, you know, the idea of efficiency and discipline, the reward of the work ethic, the good of the state being valued over the individual. And only the Cardassians could take a military award that is given to a superior officer uh, that apparently you right. have an off-world ceremony for. It's a big deal. And they call it the Proficient right. Service Medallion. <laughs> it's like the faintest of praise. And I don't think Cardassians right. would even be aware of the irony, which, again, with the German parallels, you know, I've heard from comedians and funny people who have visited Germany. Irony, not real high on the list for them. For them <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting. All of this sort of invokes the kind of the best of Star Trek and, and, and not the opposite of the best of Star Trek, <laughs> not the worst of Star Trek, but, but a, a sort of a, um, a kind of a catch 22, which you also mentioned earlier right. um, in that Star Trek often espouses these these ideas of inclusiveness and not being prejudiced in any way not not judging an individual uh, by the not not judging an entire race by one series of traits and yet what star trek does necessarily has to do as a show i mean it's introducing alien races all of the time, right. and sometimes recurring alien races like the Romulans and Klingons initially, and, and then the Cardassians and Deep Space Nine, they, they actually do typically paint the entire race with one brush, because they, they have to in order to demonstrate who these people are, to give uh, the, the, the audience a frame of reference. I mean, you know, I, I did do the, the one episode of Voyager. The general rule of thumb in creating a race the shorthand for it was if you're going to create a new race or new civilization or whatever in Star Trek that we haven't seen before, you can do it with two rooms and four guys. <laughs> right. Right? I mean, that, because there are <laughs> practical, practical um, considerations. You know, you, there's, there's budget, there's time to make the sets. All this. So you're going you're gonna to write an episode that has a, a new civilization, and it, you can show that civilization with two rooms and four guys. Right. But the thing oh. is, so all Klingons are belligerent, and all Romulans are <laughs> sneaky, and, yeah. and are the Ro- initially at least. I mean, the, the Klingons sort of metamorphosed into what the Romulans were, right. you know, with the honor and all of that yeah. um, in Next Generation. But, but so, so again, they're creating 
what seem to be monolithic societies, just as a shorthand for being able to include them and 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 use these particular traits to explore the human condition. Right. So it, it's it's kind of like you say a catch twenty two. It's a weird thing. So. I know that the, you say the Kardashians aren't supposed to stand in for anybody, and that's kind of a good thing. Oh yeah, um, because you can you can then you can use them to to search out you know what you want to talk about from many aspects of humanity, which of course is what all Star Trek is is an exploration of the human condition. <laughs> yeah. At least I think that's what it is when it's at its best. Yeah, I think they kind of lucked into that with the Kardashians as well, because when they were first introduced, I think everybody in the uh, production was kind of dismayed that they weren't well defined. Uh, they of course appeared first in the episode "The Wounded," and right. I think that turned out to be a good thing because they were allowed to grow uh, and show nuance, you know, as they appeared mm-hmm. again and again to the point where uh, when they were going to make the uh, when they made the episode of Next Generation Ensign Row, uh, Rick Berman suggested that they should use the Cardassians. Uh, as the conquerors of Bajor instead of the Romulans as they originally planned. And quick sidebar, thank God the franchise has showed restraint mostly in using the Romulans. Um, I feel like every time I read, you know, in the behind the scenes information about an interesting antagonist, I see, you know, it was originally planned that the Romulans would yada, yada, yada. And they're definitely better in small doses. You know, in fact, the first Romulan episode, Balance of Terror, uh, which we've covered previously on this show, uh, has that the- has the theme that we see in the wounded and this, which is like we're not so different. You know, neither of us want these horrors of war to propagate. And I'd actually recommend uh, the wounded, uh, which we've also covered on this show, uh, as a nice companion piece for this episode because, you know, it shows what effect the war has on com- combatants. Um, the wounded does, while Duet emphasizes the effect uh, on civilians or non-combat personnel. They both explore what war makes of us. I think one of the great things about Deep Space Nine was it often didn't go where you thought it was going to go. Uh-huh. And actually, the latter few years, few seasons of Deep of uh, the Next Generation were kind of like that as well. And in The Wounded, you know, you, you're trying to deal with uh, a, a rogue Federation, rogue Starfleet captain, um, and him not doing what's right, and and O'Brien's genuine racism, his antipathy towards essentially all Cardassians, and, and then the Cardassians who we think are innocent turn out not to be so innocent after all. Right. And in, in this episode of Deep Space Nine, we think, oh, he's trying to, he's, he's this guy. You know from the get-go something's off, because otherwise why would he show up, you know? <laughs> yeah. And we think, oh, this guy's pretending not to be a war criminal, but he really is, but it turns out he really wasn't. So, right. so you know, it zigs and then zags, and I really always dug that about Deep Space Nine. Yeah, certainly this episode in particular, I, those... Uh... Those twists are uh, very well constructed and they're very well timed. There aren't any like forced, you know, act breaks in this where we just push in on a character and have to sort of manufacture a drama. Like those dominoes fall uh, at the perfect time where we think we're going one way and then we're going somewhere else. And it's always recontextualizing, you know, what we understand about this character. And I think that we'd be uh, remiss if we didn't talk a little more about the breakout performances in this episode. I hope I'm not totally alone in not initially being immediately impressed with the character of Kira early in the first season. I feel like her characterization was mainly often gets mad. Yeah. And Nana Visitor was definitely checking the passionate and animated boxes in her portrayal and uh, checking them hard. But she really 
comes into her own here, and and Visitor is doing some fantastic and subtle work as she's going through the emotions of anger and, and, and pleading and, and triumph and, and pity. You know, it's it's the kind of hook for the character that'll serve as a foundation going forward for the whole series. You know, the idea that, like O'Brien, she's got to get over her anger and resentment. And then, of course, the parallels come full circle when she is assisting the Cardassians in staging their own revolution at mm. the end of the series. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's the, uh, the line in, um, I think it's in The Dogs of War, where Damar, when, when he gets word that the Dominion has just killed, you know, laid waste to a Cardassian city, or just millions of, of, uh, of Cardassian civilians dead, he says, you know, what, what kind of a person would kill innocent women and children? Yeah, they and kill his family. It, right, and they say that, he says it in front of Kira. Yeah, that's in uh, Tacking into the Wind. You know, and our reaction is... It is, is great. I mean, she just says, "Yeah, what kind of people?" And and it, it doesn't <laughs> yeah. have to say what you know. Uh, but it, it but it but it's interesting because I mean, this is this is what drama is all about: is 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 character arcs, is growth, is is conflict. You know, and seeing Kira ultimately conflicted and and dealing with her prejudices yeah. without saying that, without without speaking those words. Um, I don't know. It's a very Deft script, I think. Uh, oh, absolutely! A terrific story, and it, it the look on her face. I would agree with you um, that that Nana Visitor definitely grew with the role, and her the look on her face at the very end of the episode is just fantastic. It just this is incredibly poignant. Yeah. Um, in fact, the episode really. I, I just watched it again. I hadn't watched it in some years. And made me tear up at the end. It's just, uh, I mean, the, the last scenes with, with Harris Eulen as Maritza pretending to be Darheel, but having to deal with his own guilt of being ineffective, you know, completely ineffectual at resisting the bad behavior of his people. Um, he knew what, what, they, what the Kardashians were doing was wrong, yeah. but he was powerless to stop them, and he is clearly racked with guilt because of that um yes it's it's just it's an episode well worth watching and it and absolutely stands on its own too you really actually don't have to have any backstory on the romulan uh, romulans (laughs) you don't have to have any any backstory in the romulans that's true but you actually don't need to have any backstory on the cardassians or the bajorans either because what you need to know is mentioned in the episode the fact that there was an occupation of bajor by cardassia the fact that there was this forced labor camp the fact that uh, Bajor is now free. All of that is in the episode. Yeah, it's pretty self-contained. I was talking to um, Keith DeCandido about uh, attacking into the wind on an earlier episode, and we were talking about that scene with Damar and Kira, and the fact that she says what she says, and it's it's brutal, and maybe the lessons that she learns here, you know, aren't complete yet, but they are also, if you imagined her uh, saying something like that or having something like that said in front of her in the first season, you know, it would be completely different than what happens in that scene in Tacking Into the Wind where she makes her thrust but is immediately just herself like, why did I say that? That was so stupid. He's just lost his family. He's been through nearly as much as I have and I need to understand that, you know, he, I can, he understands me now. Yeah. Well, right, exactly. I mean, 
she in the, in the first seasons, particularly the, the the big the early part of the first season, Cardassian says that in front of Kieran, she'd be ready to snap his neck. Right. You know, she. I mean, she. You know, in this, she actually, even though it's difficult it, it, thinking that she would say this after somebody who's just lost their family. I for, you know, I was saying it was the city, it was, it was his family. I forgot about that. But she, what she says, even though it ends, it ends up that it's it's cruel. Um, and harsh. Um, she's really saying it as a teaching moment, you know. Mm-hmm. Right? She's trying to say, "Yeah, look, this is also what you and your people did." Yeah. She, I mean, she—it's the wrong time to say that, and she shouldn't have said it then. But she's not ready to 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 even punch him in the face. She wants to utilize that moment to teach him something, yeah. to make him have this realization that essentially, hey, we're not different, right? We have families too. Yeah. And you killed our civilians. You killed our, our, our families. And, uh, you know, it's just Deep Space Nine did a really fine job of exploring all of that, of mining all of that, that the stress of war, the post-traumatic stress of war, um, um, and, and involved in all of that, there has to be some notion of, of racism or prejudice because, you know, you don't round up all the Jewish people and throw them into forced labor camps and torture and experiment and kill them um, because you don't think that they're, because you think they're the same as you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, maybe maybe some people realized they weren't different, but they, they, they just needed the, the, the scapegoat to unify the people or whatever. But, but still, there is this, this, this element of racism in there, of, of prejudice. I, it's always weird to me, the word racism, uh, in the context of humanity, when you think about it in a science fiction setting, because, uh, you know, we're one race. <laughs> well, yeah. <I> mean, <laughs> right? The human race. Technically, it's so, uh, speciesism, but, but yeah, as an allegory, it's racism. Right, exactly. 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 So, but anyway, um, it just, you know, an episode well worth watching. Absolutely. I think if there's one thing that I have to complain about, it's the rather trite end of the episode uh, where Otis from Mayberry that we see in an early scene comes back and just shanks Maritza. Um, Trek episodes often just sort of switch off when the main conflict has been resolved. Uh, it's like they want to get that last twist of the metaphorical knife uh, for this episode in that, you know, Kira, Kira understands that everyone has been victimized by the occupation, but it's like, we get it. It's sad. You know, and the camera pulls away as she's you know holding the guy. I mean, I think if the climax of Maritza breaking down and Kira relenting could have come a little earlier so that that last you know, the fifth act is more of, you know, what do we do now? Where do we go from here? And you get more of a sense that things might get a little better. We set a little more up. And then that's all taken away when he's stabbed. Um, and we can see, um, you know, Kira put Otis away. And we know that she's really going to be different going forward. Um, we don't really get that. It just sort of ends. And we know for a fact that we're never going to see Stabby Guy again. Like, he was just a device. was fascinating. Otis has as knife-wielding Stabby Otis. killer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, you know, I, I, I was not particularly enamored of that actor's performance. Um, it seemed a little too caricaturish. Sure. Right? Yeah. Um, um, I mean, you know, I used to think when I was younger that, uh, you know, actors' jobs were to lie. <laughs> yeah, okay. Sure. Right? Just to, yeah. But, but, but in fact, 
actors' jobs are to tell the truth, Absolutely. right? Yeah. They have to be truthful so that you can understand what's So if you're playing a guy, I mean, this guy clearly prejudiced against Cardassians, but, you know, not that he's justified, but you can understand the reasons for it. But he didn't play it like that. He just sort of played it like this, you know, like a hayseed. I mean, it's just, you know, like you said, Otis is, Otis is the killer of the day. So, I, you know, that aspect of it I didn't like, but I, I have to say I did, you know, I, I really did like, in the last line, here's the last line of the episode, really sort of just demonstrates her growth as a character. And actually, the scene earlier, you're right, the scene earlier with her and with Kira and, and Maritza in, in the cell, where, where she outs him as not being the butcher of Galatep and him just breaking down and and still feeling culpable for what happened just because he was there and did nothing to try and stop it. Yeah. And that That is just an incredibly moving uh, you know, uh, part of the episode. Actually, one of the things that, you know, now that you sort of bring up, like, you know, an aftermath or whatever, I've always wondered about the aftermath of this episode because, which, of course, we never really saw any. As far as I know, this is never referenced again in the series. I don't believe that it is. Um, but early in the show, when, the, you know, uh, Gul Dukat makes two appearances, one's talking to Cisco, one's talking to Odo. Uh, and when he's talking to Cisco, I mean, he's, he's essentially protesting the arrest of a Cardassian who actually is, well, he's being detained, but he hasn't been charged with anything, and, and Dukat wants him let go. Yeah. Um, and, and this is before they, they know that he's Dariel, or, or is pretending to be Dariel, or admits to being Dariel. Um, and Dukat says, look, you're not Bajoran, I'm not Bajoran. I would hate for what's going on in the Bajorans' minds to come between the Federation and Cardassia. Really an implied threat of, you know, th- this is, if not uh, uh, an act of war, possibly, it's something that's going to make the, the, the relations, diplomatic relations between our countries deteriorate. And so... So there's, you know, if anything should, and Dukat said that if anything should happen to this man while he's in custody, you know, that's going to be a problem. Well, <laughs> something did happen to this man. No, he wasn't in custody at the time he'd been released, but still, a Bajoran killed a Cardassian yeah. who was not guilty. So I'm like, yeah, I would have liked, actually, give me an idea for a book. Oh, there you go. <laughs> the continuing story. Because really, yeah, I mean, these, that's, um, yeah, I, I, I want to know. I want to know more too. I, I think that they possibly didn't want to uh, muddle their message too much because, really, if you're making a story about, um, well, essentially racism, um, the final beat of this is that uh, Otis walks. You know what I mean? Like he's he's arrested for murder. He is uh, remanded to the Bajoran, uh, you know, judicial system. And the guy killed a suspected war criminal and he just walks like he just goes free. And then, of course, we have to feel bad about that. And I think that that was maybe too many beats to put into um, into an episode like this. You know, we wanted to focus on the fact that Kira had specifically changed and been touched by uh, seeing this this Cardassian. Right. Clearly, it's not about. Uh, not about the the murderer. It's about it's about Kira and and Darheel, uh, Maritza. 
So, uh, and, and yeah, I think you're right. Too many beats, uh, and, yeah, that could have muddied the message. I don't know that I would necessarily agree with you about the outcome, although the Federation wants Bajor to join. Bajor wants to join the Federation. Mm. How does this impact that? I mean, there, there's, yeah, I, 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 I mean, how does it impact, how would Otis going free after killing an innocent Cardassian, how does that play out in Bajor's petition for entrance into the Federation? I mean, that's... <laughs> that's true. You know, not to, not, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, there's, there's, there's kind of a lot there. So, yeah, probably, probably more than 42 minutes could handle. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, just rewinding a little bit, uh, if I still can, I appreciated your comments about um, an actor's job uh, being to be honest and, and not to deceive... And uh, I actually was in a production of a play uh, called Death and the Maiden, which is by uh, Ariel Dorfman. It was made into a movie, um, I don't know, in the 90s. And it's about uh, a woman who was um, abducted and tortured um, in Chile uh, during the reign of uh, Pinochet. And she and her husband have a guest for dinner, and she becomes convinced that the guest uh, was the man who was in charge of her torture. And so she kidnaps him and sort of tortures him a little and the, you know, the action of the play is her trying to convince her husband that this is the guy, but they're not sure. And if should they do something to him? And uh, so it has parallels. To, I probably should have mentioned earlier. It has a lot of parallels to this episode. Uh, but I played the doctor. And people ask me, you know, did you do it or not? Are you the guy? Because it remains unresolved by the end of the play. And I said, the only way to play it is, no, I'm not that guy. I can't sit here and play that I am him and I'm pretending to not be, or I'm some come di- you know some diabolical genius. Like really, the only way to I am convinced that I'm not him. And so whatever you want to take from that as an audience member, uh, fine. But there's really you can only play it like truthfully. There are villains out there who are you know, crazed madmen. Sure. And to me, those are absolutely the least interesting. <laughs> yeah. The most interesting. The most interesting villains. Even though I've written an occasional crazed madman, um, and they are fun to write. Well, yeah. But, um, and actually, I, I sort of had one in the 34th rule, which has Quark and, and uh, Rom being detained in Galatep by a, by a Bajoran who has gone around the bend sort of because of the occupation. Yeah. This guy is, is now in charge of detaining these Ferengi. Uh, and he, he just, he, he, he the post-traumatic stress of it, he was, he was an inmate and now he's the warden. Um, and, and it just, he just can't handle it. And, and, but the, to me, villains are far more interesting when they don't, they, they, even if you're a villain, even if you are, um, you know, the antagonist in the piece, as an actor, it seems to me, and even the character, ha- you have to justify your act. You can't think you're a villain. If you think you're a villain, you change your ways. If you think you're a bad person, you stop being a bad person. But, you know, people have to justify their actions. People do it all the time in, in much smaller ways and in, you know, with much lesser bad behavior. You know, people, it's interesting, living in Los Angeles, um, if you're on the highway and you put your, your directional on to change lanes, I would say fully 75% of the time, probably much higher than higher percentage than that, the person in that lane will speed up so that you can't get in front of them. <laughs> yeah. 
right? I in other that. parts of the country, <laughs> right? in other parts of the country, you put on your turn signal to change lanes, and somebody backs off to let you in. Yeah. Now, the thing of it is that in Los Angeles, where there's, I mean, Los Angeles isn't really a city, it's a sprawl, and there are millions and millions of people. The person you cut off, you're not going to end up seeing them at the corner store later that day. So there are really no repercussions to your bad behavior, your small act of, of bad behavior, yeah. right? You live in a small town with 750 people. You, you don't cut the guy off because you're likely to, likely to see him at the barber shop later in the week, <laughs> right. right? He knows who you are, and you, you will be held to account for your actions. Yeah, it's dehumanizing other people. It's dehumanizing other people and oftentimes elevating yourself, be, being just so self-involved that you can't put yourself even for a second in somebody else's shoes. Like, you know, the same person who would, would not let the person in if they're signaling. Also, if that happened to them, somebody wouldn't let them in. They'd, they'd be mad at that person, yeah. even though they exhibit the same behavior. So you're sort of, you know, it's, you know not walking in another person's shoes is, is the pro, you know, part of the problem. Yeah. And what's my, that's what makes uh, Maritza's sacrifice really stand out is that he is somebody who I, I think um, Dave Mack, a frequent guest on the show, would, would describe him as a sin eater. In this case, he is taking on the sins of the Cardassian people himself, even though he is not particularly explicitly guilty of them. But he himself is trying to, to sacrifice himself in order to uh, to call attention to you know, what the Cardassians did and, and to, to make them pay, you know, so their society can move forward. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Although he does feel his own version of guilt for, for he feel, he does feel some measure of complicity yeah. simply by not taking action against them. So, yeah, you know, so he is walking in the Bajoran shoes, but also Kira then is walking in his shoes too, because she sees that this man really isn't guilty in the way that she thought he was. I mean, Kira, at one point in the episode, says just because he was there, just because he, she doesn't say this explicitly, but the implication is, file clerk or not, he was a part of this terrible thing that was done, and so he is guilty. Yeah. And she kind of changes her tune by the end of the episode, realizing you couldn't have done anything. Yeah. You know? And she wants someone so, to pay, uh, just somebody to pay so she can feel better, but there really isn't anybody... <laughs> Except for the people, you know, who right. were were in charge. I mean, there is no one to persecute or prosecute for it. Well, they also uh, they also it, that the whole thing brings up the question too of of what makes you guilty of that war crime? Is it actually perpetrating, ordering, or perpetrating? The, the orders, or, or is it also following orders, or is it just being part of the infrastructure that allows those orders to be made and all of those horrific acts to happen? And the question is, is that right? I mean, is it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not an easy, I was just following orders, you know? <laughs> right. There's nothing I could have done, right. right? So, yeah, I mean, it's, the episode brings up a lot of great questions. Yeah, it certainly does. Uh, I think that we have covered just about everything, but is there anything left unsaid at this point? Any last thoughts? Uh, you know, um, <laughs> well, there were a couple of lines, and amusing lines in the episode that I liked. I did like the fact that at one point they say, he was a file, well, Q 
curious is what did you do? She really, they find him out. He claims not to have ever been on Bajor. Then they determine that he actually was at Galatep. And she says, Kira asks him, what did you do? And he says, you'll be disappointed. And <laughs> right. I, was a fi- I was a file clerk. And she is kind of disappointed. She wants him to be more than that. She wants him to be guilty and all of that. Yeah. But later, she, when she's questioning him, she says, uh, referring to the job he's had for the last five years before coming to Deep Space Nine, she says, what is a file clerk doing teaching at, the mil- at a military academy? <laughs> and I love, he says, believe it or not, filing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, the, the character is great in that uh, he knows exactly what he needs to accomplish because he's so uh, innocuous, you know, at first. Uh, and then as soon as, you know, he gets, you know, the gun goes off, then he's giving her every single speech, you know, from the dictator, uh, you know, book uh, in order to inflame her to basically, you know, suicide by Kira. Um, but he has right. to keep it in until until, you know, the uh, table has turned and then he can just be. And then every time, he, you know, she leaves and he comes back, he's like, oh, here we go again. Oh, you want to talk some more about this and that? And it's just ugh, you just want to strangle him. What's interesting, too, is there are times where whoever is talking with him leaves and he's alone in his, Maritza's alone in his cell. Yeah. And Harris Eulen just takes a, a second or two to show that there's something else going on. He, he, you can see it in his eyes. Yeah. It's just great acting. You can see that there's more that's going on. And he's, it, it's almost like he's trying to remember his lines, like, yeah. okay, <laughs> this is what Darheel would say, yeah. you know, this is how I have to behave. This is how I have to react. It's it's very subtle, but and it's something that you might not pick up on the first viewing. But it's something that watching it again, it's like, oh, oh, I, I, I can see, you know, the machinations going on in his head. This yeah. is what I have to do. And it's really great, and it's it's a it's a subtle bit of restraint, I think, for the producers of the episode and the director as well. In that we don't, you know, cut to him by himself. Uh, he's not really seen uh, without another character there, so we don't get a thing where he's clearly, you know, doing what you're saying, like taking the mask off. We know that something's wrong, right. but they don't blow the entire thing before uh, it's appropriate. Right, right. It all hangs together very well. Uh, it yeah. just—I uh, mean, there are these hints, but as you say, they don't cut to him just by himself. It's just at the end of scenes. It, it's really terrific. I've been rewatching the entirety of DS9 and reviewing it for my Patreon patrons. And uh, I should say, in some cases, uh, watching for the first time, because I don't think I've actually seen every episode of the series. Uh, and I've just completed the first season, uh, which is a little rocky and unfocused, uh, like they're just finding yeah. their feet. But this episode is, is fantastic, and it's a clear sign that the gauntlet is being thrown down vis-a-vis this being a different kind of show. They're not going to shrink from the implications of the kind of topics they want to explore, and they're not going to reset you know, and just fly off uh, every at the end of every episode, and that's great. Yeah, I, I completely agree. When I watched Deep Space Nine for the second time, beginning to end, um, the thing that really struck me about so many of the episodes, and I was constantly saying this to my wife, is that the show is so human. Yeah. Um, which I don't mean as a slur, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, but it really it was Star Trek. If Star Trek's mission, in part, is to talk about the human condition, it does it over and over and over again in some in some wonderful ways. Um, it just the show really stands out for me. Absolutely. 
Well, the last time you were on the program, you said that Kirk was your favorite captain, but Cisco was probably your favorite captain to write for. Uh, I know that Cisco doesn't have too big of a part in this episode, but how do you think that he does in handling this situation? You know, it's interesting. The real decision he has to make in this episode is whether or not to let Kira handle the investigation. Right. And, um, I mean, in the beginning of the episode, he, he's very by the book. And, uh, the, you know, this man who claims to be uh, Amon Maritza, and who actually is, but uh, Amon Maritza, he, um, he says, goes, wants, he's not on a list of war criminals, so why are we holding him? Um, and Kira's saying because he can contracted a medical condition that is only possible for him to have, have contracted if he was at Galatep during this mining incident was when, and that was when the camp was being run. So he has to be guilty. He's, he just plays it by the book. He doesn't want to hold somebody without cause. He doesn't want to try somebody without due process. He doesn't really want to just hand him over to the Jorans, even though he might have to because he's on a Bajoran station and he gets a call from the Minister of State. But at some point, he goes to Kira and he says, I'm putting Odo in charge of this investigation. And she makes a case. She, she pleads with him to let her handle it. And, and he thinks that she's too close to it. And, and, and clearly she is. Right. But she says she needs to do this because she saw the victims of the, their, the internment at Galatep, and she, has, she wants to do it in their, her, their memory, and it, it's clearly very important to her so that Cisco, in that conversation, I think Cisco can see it's not just about vengeance mm-hmm. for Kira, mm-hmm. because that would be just a terrible... Somebody who's just looking for vengeance, you can't have them in charge of an investigation. Right. Uh, of that investigation, but she convinces him that that it's more than that. It's it is personal and it's it's certainly subjective, and she she cops to all that. But she also says, "Look, I'm going to conduct. I'm your first officer. I'm going to conduct myself as your first officer. But I'm asking you as a friend. You said I was your friend once. I'm asking you as a friend." And he reconsiders and and lets her lead the investigation. And obviously, she she's she's hard uh, with. Uh, with Maritza, and she does believe he's guilty, but she did conduct the investigation above board because in the end she comes around to understand exactly who he is and what he was doing and why he was doing it. So Cisco's decision-making in this case proves to be justified. Yeah, and he, and he trusts her. Um, he's Cisco, as we know, is not somebody that you um, can easily push around. And even in this episode, there are people trying to lean on him, but she comes to him and she's honest about you know, her position and, and the situation and just asks him if he, she can do this. And at this point, you know, we were talking about the show sort of building on what's come before. Um, she's, she's proven herself worthy of his trust in this situation. She, she justifies it, you know, by, by her conduct. So, yeah. so good, good commanding on Cisco's part. <laughs> uh, for appearing on the show a second time, you will receive a promotion to Lieutenant Junior Grade, and I believe that you uh, expressed a desire to climb the ranks of command, but also possibly to work in a scientific field. And I was thinking, somebody has to be in charge in science, uh, whether you're in the astrophysics lab or the xenobiology department. You know, you could be the person ordering someone to perform that 13-hour gravity experiment or to take a sample of that creature's mucosal excretions. You know, delegate. Spock, you botched the acetylcholine test. Right. 
you start yelling at blue shirts, and then later on you can yell at all the shirts. <laughs> well, you know, or just command the science vessel, ultimately. Or that too, yeah. And I have to imagine that... I'll settle for departments to begin with. <laughs> uh, I'd have to imagine that uh, the nerds won't fight back quite as much. They're used to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So try that out. Uh, Lieutenant George, thanks again for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at, at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Uh, best place to find me is my website, which is drgiii.com, which is David R. George III. Um, so drgiii.com, that's the best place to find me, and you can... Um, you can contact me through there. You can look at the stuff that I've been writing. I put stuff, uh, I put Star Trek stuff on there. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be appearing uh, with a few other Star Trek writers at the Star Trek original series set tours in June. So I've got that information on there, and I always put that kind of stuff there. But also, hey, if you like movies, i got movie reviews on there. If you like baseball, I talk a little bit about baseball on there, which is another one of my passions. Uh, my entire bibliography is on there. Um, and uh, anyway, that's where to find me online. Yeah, check out uh, his movie reviews on Twitter and also look for Original Sin and his other novels on Amazon and other places. Thanks again for joining me. Thanks, Aaron. I appreciate it. We are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies close. It's on your mind.